Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast brought to you by SME Strategy. My name is Anthony Taylor and I'm going to be your host today. On the Strategy and Leadership Podcast, we interview senior leaders and thought leaders to get their best practices for leading teams, for driving and executing strategy, and other best practices as it relates to leadership and team development. And our goal here on the Strategy and Leadership Podcast is to bring you practical and executable tips that you can use right away to support the growth of your organization or your business. So if you enjoy today's episode, please be sure to subscribe. You can follow us on YouTube for other bonus content on strategy and leadership, or, and you can join in on the conversation on Facebook in the strategy and leadership community. So I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. My guest today is David White, PhD. He is the principal and co-founder at Ontos Global and is the author of Disrupting Culture. David, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm excited. I'm excited to have you. It's another great day in life today, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to get to speak to you. That makes two of us. Thank you. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I appreciate you being here. Why don't you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about you, your background, you know, how did you get to where you are right now? Wow. I've got a very, I've got a very eclectic background, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, but well, this book, Disrupting Corporate Culture is about culture and culture change and culture formation and large organizations. And I've been doing uh, organizational transformation and change work and culture work for a long time as a practitioner. And growing up in uh, big companies like Lotus, IBM, Microsoft, as well as being an entrepreneur myself, having my own software company that I started in the late 90s and well, and, and now, of course, as a consultant uh, for about 10 years with my partner, Lisa Koss, doing organizational transformation work and leadership work, large companies. I've been on this kind of culture journey for a long time. My background is, you know, I, I grew up in South America, in Europe. Um, I came to the U.S. when I was eight. Even though I have a name, David White. My dad's American. My mother's South American, Chilean. So I've been sort of living in between cultures for a long time, too, with family in Europe and uh, South America and uh, moving around all over the world growing up and uh, having a lot of diverse interests. So I've kind of been in different worlds. And I think that's also got me interested in this culture question because coming in and out of worlds, as you may know, when you cross a boundary, a social boundary, you become very aware of culture very quickly. It's like landing in a foreign airport where you can't read the signs and you try to get a, try to get a taxi. Well, now we have Uber and Lyft, but in the old days when you try to get a taxi, you know, you, how do you get a taxi? Is there no, there's no queue. There's no, there are no cues for how to do that. People are haggling over price on the street. You know, what do you do? And that's, you know, for me, that's culture. And how do you, how do you make sense of that uh, as you come into a new environment? Um, and so a lot of my life has been characterized by moving in and out of new environments, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, no, I got that. Well, I mean, of course, we got your corporate background on your LinkedIn, which everybody can find by going to David G. White Jr., PhD. But, you know, you worked at Microsoft, you have your company, Ontos, you worked at Mercer, like you've been doing this a really long time. So sort of more of an interest question. How many people do you think that you have, like, impacted or worked with directly through your change and transformation efforts, just for our audience to know, like, really the scale at which you've done things? Well, impact is a big question. Impact's in the eye of the beholder, right? Uh, the answer could be zero. <laughs> but 
in terms of just raw numbers, I mean, uh, the I, I led a corporate transformation effort at Microsoft that was touching 100,000 people, uh, building the career development infrastructure for that company and trying to change culture as a result of, of that effort. And now at Antos, you know, we work with clients all over the world, mostly Fortune 1000 companies, mostly global companies. That's because of our special, we do cross-cultural work, hence the name global. So, and we do a lot of coaching and leadership development and, and culture change work in that context. And so probably in the upwards of, you know, many thousands uh, now as well. Again, impact being in the eye of the beholder, but we, we touch a lot of people through our various programs and consulting. Yeah, I get that. Well, I just, again, there's a lot of people you see, and I think in that it's not, you know, it's not a one size fits all thing. So obviously, you know, it, it affects different people differently for it to be successful. It needs to be individualized as well as being able to roll out um, at a bigger scale. So I guess my first question is, and so you alluded to the the dropping into a different culture. Basically, you land somewhere, different language, different experience. And then what comes out in our already brief conversation and everything you have on your website is the idea of transformation versus change, transformation versus change. And so how would you tie in that sort of experience of dropping into something new parallel with transformation as it relates to an organization's uh, state and future? I think when you, when, you, uh, when you drop in, to use your metaphor, uh, into a new situation or you cross a boundary, you, know, you suddenly become aware of cognitive anthropologists, cognitive scientists think about culture, which is what we think of culture as a, as a reference system. Culture basically is a way of making sense. It's, it's knowledge, background knowledge. And the means by which we make sense of the world around us becomes very apparent when you get off that plane in, in Ghana and suddenly everything that you thought you knew about how to navigate, you know, get a, getting a taxi in an airport is totally off totally wrong. Or you, you know, come into a new organization and people are doing things in a totally different way than what you thought, you know, um, people are arguing with the boss in the meeting and you've come from an environment where you never challenge the boss on anything, right? So when you're new in a system like that, you're, you're very aware of these, of these norms, of these practices, or what I call the reference system, the, the system of meaning that runs behind the scenes, like you're like your mental operating system, your cultural operating system. And it's easier to see such operating systems when you're new to them. And when you buy a new laptop, you turn on your Mac. You know, I was a Windows guy with Microsoft. I left Microsoft, first thing I did was bought a Mac, turned on the machine, new operating system. Wow, I've never used a Mac in my entire life, you know. So suddenly how do, you're very aware of how things work, don't work, and what you thought you knew about how to manipulate the machine in this case no longer applies, right? Different file system, different menuing system. So cultures are like that. And you see those reference systems much more so when you're new in that system. After, after a time, because culture is more the lens through which you look at things versus what you see, after a time, that lens, that lens becomes part of the culture. As we say in the anthropology, you go native. You know? And it's harder to see a system, a social system, a cultural system, when you're in the middle of it. This is why you have anthropologists who come and ask you all these strange questions because <laughs> you become aware of what you've taken for granted and culture is what you take for granted. And so in terms of what you do for people, and obviously you have a, a different scientific sort of approach to it and from a cultural anthropology 
anthropoid or a cognitive anthropology. What are some of those questions that you ask people without giving away your secret sauce for them to understand it? Or how is sort of your approach to that as you enter that and have other people maybe even recognize the lens that they look through things that they might not even be aware of? Yeah, I know. That's a good question. That, that's exactly what, what we do. There is there really is no secret. This is, this is uh, cognitive anthropologists have been studying culture for, anthropologists have been studying culture for 100 years. Since about the 1970s or 80s, we've known that culture basically is a, is a cognitive phenomenon. It's a phenomenon of the mind. And as a reference system, what we do with clients is we try to get clients aware of the contents of that system, if you will. And so... Um, like any operating system, again, I'm going to use that, that analogy because it, it works well for, for culture. Like any operating system, it's got multiple layers. And at the base layer, this is the atomic layer, the, the sort of core layer are these very core simplified mental models, heuristics, rules, technically the word is schema. Um, I call them logics by which uh, when you put them into words, they become assumptions. They're called assumptions that people have about the world. And so a lot of what we do with our clients is try to make them aware of their own assumptions. And how do you do that? Well, a lot of it is done through a series of questions, interviews, questionnaires, surveys. You know, you can start to see patterns in how a group makes sense of the world by the assumptions that they hold collectively. Now, you and I have a million mental models or schemas or assumptions about the world, but the ones that we share, or we would share in a group, are the foundations or the atomic basis of culture. And so what you, can, what you can see through some of these anthropological, cognitive anthropology techniques is how those assumptions or logics show up as patterns across the organization in terms of, in terms of practices, organizational practices. For example, uh, we work with a lot of industrial clients. Industrial clients are very risk averse and for many reasons, many, many good reasons. It's, you know, the cost of failure when you're making airplanes or helicopters or refrigerators tends to be very high versus when you're making software, you can correct a bug in the next release, which could be next week, right? You can't really recall, if you recall a refrigerator or a car, uh, that can be catastrophic, right, for the business. So managing risk or achieving what we call certainty in those kinds of environments is very, very, very critical. When you start to expose risk or the orientation to risk, as a set of assumptions that your people in a particular culture, leaders in a particular culture might hold about the world around them, their business, their clients, their customers, their employees, themselves. Um, when you start to expose those kinds of assumptions about risk, you start to see risk management as a pattern across all sorts of practices, how they hire, how they develop, how they plan, how they organize, how they do budgets, how they approach customers, how they develop product. You might see the risk management schema or logic across all of those practices. So a lot of our work with clients is about exposing the underbelly or exposing the pattern, the cognitive pattern in these practices, showing the skeleton in the x-ray. Well, what I heard out of that, and I'm interested to get your perspective, because we talked about certainty from like a business standpoint, but in the sort of, if we look at patterns, are there patterns and sort of a balance between the assumptions and certainty? And, and do those things play off or are they not connected at all? You mean the concept of certainty in the, in the, in the example I was using? Yeah, in the, in the certain certainty around from, because uh, we talked about risk management. So it's like, I am certain this person is going to act this way. 
But the only way that you're certain is presumably through a series of patterns that would lead to the logic that would say, if this, therefore that. And that's the assumption I'm making. The assumptions in, in, the, in, this, in this example, in, in the, for example, industrial manufacturing companies, would be to try to mitigate all risk, right? So to, take, to de-risk um, your, enough, your environment so that you can achieve certainty. So that's the, that's the idea. So, you know, for example, in our hiring practices, we might only promote people who've done the job before into a new job. Like if you haven't done the job before, I can't even consider you for the role, right? Whereas other companies where certainty logics or certainty schemas are not so prevalent, taking a chance on an, on an individual could be just normal, right? Or, you know, product development processes where um, products have to go through numerous um, stage gate reviews to get approved and get funding for the next level. And you have to make sure you're meeting all these criteria for your, for your, new, your product. You know, you're making a pump or you're making a, you know, an HVAC unit, right? Well, in other environments where risk or certainty aren't such a dominant way of looking at the world, you know, like in the tech companies, you're, you're, the orientation is much more towards failing fast. If it doesn't work, we're going to abandon that. We're going to do something else next week, right? Or we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna ship this product as a software product or we're going to put up this release. It's got known bugs. We'll correct them next week, right? So the orientation to risk in that scenario is from that tech company is very different than the industrial company. So it's the industrial company would be more oriented towards trying to de-risk its activities as much as possible. The interesting part about culture though, is how when you get habituated to doing things a certain way in one environment, you try to take those heuristics or those rules or those logics and apply them in another environment. And that's where culture really comes in. What you do over here habitually, now you try to apply over here. Yeah. Well, what I find interesting, and I've interviewed hundreds of people and talked to thousands of leaders and things like that, but I've never sort of really gotten the impact of culture on business process, as in that your processes are derived by your propensity to do things or your desire to do things, like in this case, reduce risk or make sure that the person who gets hired into this role is all driven by culture. And it's uh, interesting. Yeah, we, we like to say... It- in our in our field, culture follows task. And the common sort of popular, you know, Amazon bestseller way of thinking it is is reversed somehow that task follows culture. And it's 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 interesting, right? Because that, that assumes that you can sort of create the culture to get what you want, like input output, right? And in fact, from the cognitive science perspective, it's, it's the exact opposite. The way you think about the world is going to be driven by what you do. What you do all day shapes how you think you do all day shapes the way you see the world and that will be the formation of culture. So if you want to actually change how you think you got to change what you're doing. Yeah. Who you're, you're, you're being versus you're doing. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you about some practical things about this, but before I do, I want to ask you, what is the tie in between logics, assumptions and jazz music? (laughs) Uh, you're alluding to the fact that I'm also a professional jazz musician. Very subtly alluding to it, but I find it interesting because as far as I understand, the jazz music has sort of the assumptions, the general flow, and then as you sort of everybody, not everybody does their thing, but there is some sort of uh, less certain nature of jazz, which makes the music unique compared to something a little bit more, call it predictable. Yeah, I mean, uh, jazz, unless you're, 
playing free avant-garde jazz, and even that has a kind of a logic to it, has a, a structure, has a, has a, all jazz, all music has form, meter, uh, tonality, even the absence of tonality or is, 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 is a structure of some kind, right? So there's always a, there's always an implied form and structure to what you're doing. You're playing within a, even if it for the untrained ear, it might sound just like noise. It, there's always a logic to what is happening, whether the logic is harmonic logic or rhythmic logic or melodic logic. There's always something going on that's based on some set of rules somewhere. And that's the idea behind, uh, behind culture. Uh, it's, it's, it's based on a set of rules. They're often hidden. They're logics or schemas that are hidden, hidden from plain view. But if you open your eyes and become aware, and the key to all this is, of course, awareness. Once you become aware of the patterns around you in the company, in the society, in the culture, you start to see, you start to see those patterns. So that was a segue. So good. Thank you for that. So my, my question from the practical side, let's say you're a new leader entering a new organization. What do you do to either fit in with the culture or start to, well, I guess, fit in with the culture to be able to be able to perform within that new culture? And then the second part of that question is, let's say you're already in a culture that potentially could be like established and framed and you would like to begin that journey to transform it because whatever reason the world around you is changing, you should probably change too. So somebody new dropping in and then moving it forward. Advice or coaching we always give to our clients in new systems is try to preserve your separateness as long as possible. Why? Because as a leader, one of the most valuable things that you can do for a new system, a new social system, a, a social system that you're in, is to observe and provide feedback to that system and learn the system as a participant observer and being separate from it to the extent that you can is extremely valuable as a leader because one of the privileges of leadership is you actually see the system just by virtue of your role. You're going to be seeing the system in ways that people in other parts of the organization or the system may not be able to see by virtue of where they sit and what they do all day long. So that awareness and that vision is, is, one of the privileges of leadership, one of the things that you uniquely get to do. But you can't see the system unless you actually take time to observe it. And then what, what we mean by observing is observing the patterns, observing the interactions, observing the patterns, the logics that get repeated in different practices. And so one of the ways to, to get at that, again, as I said earlier, is to spend time asking questions about what are your assumptions? What, what are your assumptions about that? Or what's behind that? Or why do we do it this way? Or how do you make sense of that? Or um, a lot of the ways you surface these logics is ask questions about why do we do it this way? Or what constitutes success? Or who's, who's a superstar? Or what does good look like here? I mean, a lot of these assumptions or logics in a, in a social system are embedded in answers to questions like that. What does good look like? Yeah. And sometimes people don't even know what that means. They just have an idea of it or an inkling or. But those kinds of questions, like what is good, elicits, can, can elicit so much information about the hidden assumptions underpinning that particular system. Do you ever see leaders who, maybe they're not new leaders, but they've lost their ability to sort of maybe not be objective, but like from the leadership standpoint, you're supposed to be looking at 30,000 feet, for lack of a better word. Do you find that there's leaders who get like sucked into the, they can't see the forest through the trees to use as many metaphors as they can? 
Absolutely. 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 It's one of the big, one of the big problems about leadership. And one of the, one of the challenges of new leaders, especially when you get promoted into bigger roles, you, you know, your comfort zone is to stay doing what you've been doing. Cause you often have, you know, a lot of our clients are technical leaders or functional leaders, people who run sales or run engineering organizations or run operations who've now been promoted to be general managers and actually run the entire business. It's very difficult to let go of the expertise, <coughs> excuse me, that, that got you there to that role to suddenly be a non-expert. You know, now I'm the general manager of the entire division and I, I know nothing about sales or I know nothing about finance. Um, how do I do that? And yet one of the keys is to actually be able to have that kind of beginner mind and that kind of, you know, that kind of perspective uh, on the business as a whole, which can be extremely valuable to the business when you, when you can bring that perspective rather than be mired in your own traditional ways of doing things. Yeah, because I, I find it interesting that both from a, if you're new to the organization or new to the role, what some people might consider a, a, a challenge or a negative being the fact that they are separate or not familiar with it, that the actual like the asset is in fact that you do bring that perspective, that different perspective, the different view, the different heuristics, the different logics that then will ultimately add value to the team because you provide input and, and contribute to that system to support it moving forward. So it's so hard, right? Because we're, we're always want to be recognized for our expertise, right? And you know, our, our knowledge and, you know, we're expert in this or expert in that. It's very hard to let go of that for leaders. So speaking of letting go, let's say you're in an organization, especially, you know, you've been around, if you're working with fortune 1000, you know, but they have their way of doing things. They're good. That might have been around for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, a hundred years. And the leadership team, or even, I'm going to say worse, but harder, a subset of the team say, hey, we actually need to transform where we want to go. What are some of the, what is the path to get there? And what is the sort of timeline expectation for, for uh, organizational transform to really be successful? That's actually the million dollar question, because one of the things, that we, it's a truism in our business, but one of the things that we know to be true is the more successful you are, the harder it is to change. And companies have been around for a long time, 100, 100 years, some of our, one, a couple of our clients are 150 years old, and, or some of their divisions are 150 years old. There usually is an external driver, which helps. You need to have some motivated reason to change. Uh, that's not a difficult proposition in this day and age with the advent of the fourth industrial revolution and uh, technology changing as fast as it's changing, sensors on everything, human machine interfaces, you know, chip implants in the brain, uh, IOT. I mean, go, go on down the line. There's obviously not, not to mention the pandemic that we're currently living in, which is disrupting business models, you know, left and right. So most companies are in the midst of some transformation. The question is, are they looking at that transformation through their lens of their heuristics or their logics that got them there, that they've, you know, they've been doing things a certain way for 100 years or 20 years? Or are they willing to surface those assumptions, surface those patterns, and look at them very critically to try and change? And that's easy to say, incredibly hard to do, because a lot of the logics or assumptions that are foundational to your business are going to be things that you hold most dear and you're going to vigorously defend. I'm going to tell you that, you know, the way you do planning needs to fundamentally change and you're going to argue with me 
ad infinitum because you've been doing you've been doing strategic planning this way for you know, this is your field you've been doing strategic planning this way for 20 years and it works and i'm here to tell you well and given the transformation you're trying to achieve taking two years to create a strategic plan when the world is changing every every 45 days or 90 days might be problematic for example yeah one of the things I, I like to tell people, and it's one of my favorite quotables, the benefit of the future needs to be greater than the pain of change. Mm -hmm. That if it's not a big enough, important thing, you can use that, by the way. Uh, if it's not big enough or important enough, then the transformation isn't going to be successful because you don't have anything at stake. Have you seen that? I mean, probably not your clients, because I imagine all of your transformations are successful. But from the outside, have you seen where what has uh, stopped transformation or desired transformation in its tracks? All the time. Uh, one of the most common things that we see is lip service. A lot of uh, nominal willingness to change, but not really understanding or willing to do the things that are really necessary to change. In other words, yes, we need to change. Yes, the world is changing. Our customers are changing. You know, digital technology is disrupting what we're doing. But we, we want to continue to do things the way we've done them. We want to continue to build product the way we've done it for all the years. Or more common, we know that the world is operating at a faster rate now than it ever has before, but it still takes us six months, eight months to make a decision on a product. Is that really, do you want to continue to take eight months to make decisions on products when what you decide today could be obsolete in six months? The, the, the dichotomy between what we say and what we do is what we see most often. So change of the transformation of the kind, to ask your earlier question, transformation of the kind we're talking about can take years. I think that it sounds like not just the willingness, the, the willingness, but I'm calling it the awareness as in, and to, to try to tie it back and, and hopefully I get this right. But if you look at sort of like the assumptions that you're making of the world outside, not just your inside world and the logic models that you're using and that you have to sort of ask your question to make sure you have the right logic models internally and externally to eventually both of those have to work sort of in, in conjunction to be able to move it forward? Would you say that that's accurate? Yeah, and if it's not already complicated enough for the other dimension of complication, which is this, the minute you and I surface our collective assumptions, they're subject to change, mm. right? We, we, can, we can, as a group, as a leadership team, once we sort of surface our collective assumptions, we have to ask, well, are they true? And they could be changing in that moment based on all sorts of other social factors, you know, group think and, pleasing the boss and all sorts of things are all sorts of other dynamics are at play. So you have to be, the, the leader has to be continually aware of self-aware enough and aware enough about the group and the group dynamic to understand is what we're talking about here really what we're changing or are we doing this in some other, for some other reasons, right? It's, it's a complex task. Yeah. I can also see, you know, like the, and I can't remember where I read this about like a boss changing their mind. Is that like changing your assumptions, changing that is not a bad thing, but it could be like, but well, you said this before, well, I'll change my mind now, which again, speaking to that assumptions that they do change. And I guess, I don't know, is the solution just dialogue? Is the solution actually talking it out, questioning, and then moving forward? The key to the kind of transformation we're talking about, and I think the change, successful change in general is, is practices you don't transform organizations through talk. And that's, that's another popular myth that I think is being thrown on its ear. Talk helps. Conversation is essential. Sense-making is essential. But what really requires, at least in complex organizations, what requires 
sustained change is changes to practices. And by practices, I mean the habitual, the informal and formal routines and habits of your organization, which can be everything from sort of formal processes down to informal management things that you do in terms of how you run a meeting, for example. Everything from how you build product and engage customers and go to market and run your operations to how you run meetings or how you onboard people or how you deal with conflict or et cetera. Which, yeah, goes back to the process, the culture influencing process. And, you know, what I hear again is a simplified, it's walking the talk is that you actually got to do the stuff you're talking about. And that's why, you know, in my field, like you said, the strategic planning, nothing happens if you don't change the way you do things. If you do the same things, you're going to get the same results, even if it's a grade of change versus transformation. Yeah, that's right. And that's why talk to, you know, conversation and dialogue is extremely helpful, but you have to have to change the habits of the organization to, to do that. Sometimes you have to use the habit or the routine to change the dialogue. Mm. You start doing, you know, like your, your strategic, just start doing planning a different way. You start running meetings a different way. You start holding conversations a different way. Leaders influence culture in that particular way because they can, they can drive the agenda. And that's the importance of, especially in your work, it's not, a, it's not like a, hey, we had a change workshop, like one change workshop. We invited a speaker to talk about change and now we're good. It's a continuous focus investment. It doesn't just happen like a light switch. Like you said, it takes years depending on the size of the organization. So uh, you literally wrote a book on this. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the book and then we've got to finish up. So if you can tell people where we can hear from you, but uh, I misspoke earlier, so I apologize for that. Uh, Disrupting corporate culture. I'll say the whole byline. Cognitive science changes how we work with culture. At least that's what it shows here. So uh, tell us a little bit about the book, where we can get it and then where we can, uh, people can get a hold of you and learn more about what your work is. Well, the book is a lot about what we've been talking about. It's about the cognitive science of culture. It's how uh, a lot of what we think about culture, uh, corporate culture, organizational culture, is based on myth uh, and wishful thinking and outdated science. The science, that's the stuff that's talked about in business schools and in the popular press is pretty far removed from what the cognitive anthropologists and cognitive scientists have been talking about. So I'm trying to bridge that gap, bring more sort of uh, scientific cognitive knowledge to the to bear on culture and culture change um so the book's a lot about that and then it talks about specific examples and case studies in 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 a specific industrial manufacturing company where we've done this work that's the channel that's what the book's about basically awesome and where can people uh, get a hold of you and learn more about you and your work uh you can get a hold of the book on your favorite online uh bookseller uh anywhere it's kindle or hardcover or whatever for me, ontosglobal.com, uh, O-N-T-O-S global.com. And that's our consulting firm. That's awesome. David, thank you so much for chatting with me today. It's been a blast. And I, I learned so much and there's so much out there. And I really look forward to just following you more and learning more about what you talk about. It's a really cool perspective and different than what you hear most people talk about, like culture. It's the talking, talking versus the process walking. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today has been David White, PhD, who is the principal and co-founder at Ontos Global and the author of Disrupting Corporate Culture. This has been the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. My name is Anthony Taylor. If you know somebody who is looking to transform culture in their organization or has been dropped in a culture where they are unfamiliar, be sure to send them this podcast, share this episode with them, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to sharing with you next time. 
Thank you for joining us on today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. If you're in the process of renewing your strategic plan and you're looking for a framework to align your team and to create a clear vision, clear goals, and a clear roadmap on how to get there, be sure to check out our signature course that will walk you through the process that we've used to create hundreds of strategic plans successfully for organizations all over the world. You'll get instant access to all the videos and documents right away. And so whether you're planning a strategy session in three months, three weeks, or three days, you'll be able to get the most out of your meeting and have everyone be on the same page and bought into your plan. It's the exact same framework that we've used for our clients and we've packaged it in a way that you can use it easily yourself. So visit smestrategy.net slash course and you can use the code podcast for $100 off. That's smestrategy.net slash course and use the code podcast for $100 off and you'll get instant access to all of the tools to help you create your strategic plan successfully and have everybody moving forward on the same page. Once again, this is Anthony Taylor with the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you real soon. Thank you.